family from a biblical perspective look like? And, and during the course of this short series of messages, uh, I'll, I talked on Mother's Day about the role of, of moms on a mission. On Father's Day, I'll talk about uh, the role of dads uh, in, in the life of the church, in the life of a family. Uh, I'll talk about marriage and parenting. But here, as we were on this particular holiday weekend, I thought that it would be an interesting moment for us to look at an idea about, uh, about the idea of hospitality. When you think about the families and how family is represented in the Bible, and God's idea for how the family operates, there is this sense at which hospitality really is a norm for who we are as the people of God, and, and that our, our homes and our families are not something that are to be closed off and shut off from the rest of the world, but really, it's something that is to be engaging in the rest of the world. And so, I've actually entitled the, the message this morning, Showing Hospitality in a Netflix World. Now, there are a lot of you in the room that you're familiar with what Netflix is. It's an online streaming service where you can watch movies and television shows. Uh, right now, it's estimated that there are about 125 million people that have, subs- that have a subscription, a monthly subscription to Netflix. And, and as I thought about how is it that we interact, how is it that people interact with one another and, and, and build relationships, uh, slowly, 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 people are seeing very less of each other uh, exactly in person, and more they are interacting, whether it's online or through Facebook or some other social media uh, channel or through text messaging. We're seeing less of each other. And yet, there's still this interaction that happens between people that is a little bit unusual for our particular season and era of history. Uh, Because people will, rather than necessarily experience the same thing in the same room at the same time, but rather uh, with Netflix, it's, it's we binge watch shows together. There's one particular uh, show that is the most popular show on the whole Netflix platform. It is The Office, if any of you have ever seen that particular sitcom. Uh, It it is this hilarious show about this uh, paper company, the Dunder Mifflin Paper Company in Scranton. And it is about all of the crazy antics that happen inside of this particular uh, office with these characters that, that fall in love and people who get mad at each other and jockeying for a position and, and certain ones of the members of the office that are always trying to make sure that they never have to do any work. Stanley, uh, Creed, some of you know these characters. It, it is by far the most popular thing that is on the Netflix platform. And, and there is this, uh, this, this meme, this idea that runs around that basically, if, you, if you're somebody who subscribes to Netflix, you just cycle through all of the other shows and all of the other movies just waiting to get back to the office. You know, you, you, you kind of run through all of your options so you can get back to the office. And, and then when people do see each other that like to watch the show, they talk about how many, how many episodes did you binge? How many seasons did you watch? You know, how, long, how far have you gotten through the show? How many times have you watched all nine seasons? So they don't actually talk about life. 
They don't actually talk about anything they personally did, but rather it is we begin to socialize around these pretend characters that happen in this mythical company, uh, you know, in a, in a series of hours that I spent watching television. And, and we might say, well, well, Pastor, that's a terrible thing that has happened in our day and time. You know, back in my day, we would have never done such. Oh, uh, soap operas, you know, Nancy Drew novels. I mean, we, every generation has always had a Netflix. They've always had a show like The Office. It just wasn't necessarily The Office, and it wasn't necessarily something on Netflix. We find ways to entertain ourselves, no matter what era of history that you have lived through, we find ways to live through surrogates, through other people. And it, and it puts up shields and walls in our lives so that we actually don't have to deal with the messiness of each other. And so we find things so that we will fit in, whether it is that we're all fans of a particular club or, or team, uh, whether it's uh, online video gaming or it's uh, a series of novels or it's your favorite, you know, sewing and knitting club. We find ways so that we can interact with people on platforms that will never touch our own life. And yet, this biblical idea comes racing to us because God has this intention that we would actually interact with one another, that we would actually welcome one another into our lives at a deep and a really personal level. The biblical idea of hospitality breaks through all the bad models of relationships, and it provides us actually a way to introduce the gospel's effect and impact in our life. You see, because when I can just talk to my friends about the office, I can make fun of Michael Scott, and I can make fun of Dwight Schrute, and I can make fun of Stanley and Creed and Phyllis and all of these characters. I mean, I can make fun of all of that, and nobody ever actually has to know anything about me. Nobody has to meet Philip with all my flaws, with all of the little hitches in my get-along, and I don't have to know anything about you. I mean, I don't have to get into the middle of all of your mess either. But when we actually relate to one another and we show hospitality in the sense of not just opening up the front door and letting somebody sit in our living room, but we're actually welcoming them into our livelihoods, into our life, into our personal being, Well, now is the opportunity for the good news that Christ transforms us by the power of of what He has done in His resurrection. Now suddenly, those kind of things have to actually take root in our life. They have to do a transformative effect on me and on others that rather than isolating and keeping these social barriers, we're going to let Christ have His full work even in our relationships. I would say that showing hospitality is a necessity for a healthy family, and for a healthy church. It helps us to reconcile how we relate to one another, how family members relate to one another, rather than putting up these boundary markers where we just interact based on our hobbies and our entertainment values and preferences. So let me give to you a few ideas this morning. First of all, as I've already begun to allude to, I think that hospitality reveals the gospel. This is one of those places where you think, well, you know, how does taking a casserole over to my neighbor's house or inviting somebody over for coffee and donuts, 
How does that reveal the gospel? But when you look in the Scripture from the very beginnings of the Word to the very end of the Word, hospitality is a standard that God hands to His people throughout all of the Old Testament and the New Testament. Let me just give you one example from the Old Testament. It's found in uh, the book of Leviticus. Uh, That's the clean white pages where the gilded edges are still stuck together. Yes, that actually is a book of the Bible. Leviticus is also one of those places that when you start your, uh, you start your plan that you're going to read through the whole Bible in a year, you get stuck in Leviticus because suddenly it's like skin lesions and goats are being, you know, given out. You're like, oh, what is going on here? In, in Leviticus chapter 19, because this is a, a, a book about the law, in Leviticus chapter 19, verses, let's see, uh, 33 and 34, it says about people who are strangers to the land. When an alien, now the the biblical word here for alien, it means an immigrant, somebody who's not uh, native born. When an alien resides with you in your land, you must not oppress him. Okay, we can do that. Verse 34, when you, you will regard the alien who resides with you as the native born among you, you are to love him as yourself. For you were aliens in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. You know, here's this principle that that God hands to the early Hebrew people that have just gotten into the promised land. When you find somebody who's a stranger in your land, treat them as if they are one of the family. Treat them as if they belong here because it will remind you that there was a time when you were in Egypt and you were in bondage and you were in slavery where you were the alien. Our hospitality is a tangible expression of the love of God. It it is not just, well, we hope that those people are okay. It's not just a sympathetic kind of sigh and nod and, and, well, you you know, it's not a vote at the ballot box. It's the decision that you make that the person who feels like they don't belong, that you make sure that they do feel like they belong, that you welcome them in. And the quality of our hospitality should make the person who is the stranger want to join the family. It should be that they say, oh my goodness, this, if this is how these people live, I want to be one of them. The Bible itself is a story of God's hospitality. When God creates the world and he puts Adam and Eve on the earth, where does he put them? In the garden where everything is provided for them. He did not make the earth and then plop them down in the middle of a a desert and say, and good luck, guys. Instead, he, he puts them in a home. When you think about the Hebrew people of the Old Testament, he takes them to a promised land flowing with milk and honey, emblematic that everything you need is going to be here. It's going to be a, a beautiful, bountiful land. Uh, Jesus, when he comes, he promises to us that we would be members of the family of God. As a matter of fact, he said to his own apostles, he said, I don't call you servants any longer because a servant doesn't know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friend because I've told you everything that my father is doing. And then the rest of the New Testament has all of this beautiful language in it about how we are members of the family of God. And even when we get to heaven, When we see the descriptions of it in the last book of the Bible, it is this place, the New Jerusalem, is a place that is designed by God for us to live in with Him. 
Hospitality is this tangible expression here on the earth that opens the door up to people who don't know the gospel to introduce them to this is what the effect and the impact of the gospel has in our lives. In the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, it continues on in this kind of idea. He says in Ephesians 2, Paul the apostle does, verse 19, so then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus Himself as the cornerstone. You know, we are part of this great kingdom, that we have this great king, that He's made it into a family. And this household imagery is a symbol of how God invites us to be a part of His family, and we ought to be an inviting people to those that are distant, to those that have put up their own boundary markers and barriers, to those neighbors that are constantly trying to make sure that you don't get in too deep with them, because we want to invite them into not just our house, but into God's house. Hospitality can be a place that reveals the nature of the gospel. Uh, secondly, though, I think that we have to deal with uh, what the obstacles are, because an active faith in your life will overcome the obstacles to hospitality. And all of us have obstacles. All of us have places where we kind of we, we stutter step a little bit, because the reality is sometimes we just don't want people in our business Sometimes the reality is we don't know about that other person enough. Should I welcome them in? Let me just run through a couple of ideas about why we need to overcome some obstacles to hospitality. I'm going to give you a, a quick list in a second about it, but I, I guess first let me, let me read to you a quick story from the Gospel of, of Luke. Here in, in Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 36, we find Jesus in the home of a place where we normally don't expect to find Him. He's in the house of a Pharisee. Luke chapter 7, verse 36, it says, Then one of the Pharisees invited Him, meaning Jesus, to eat with Him. And He entered the Pharisee's house, and He reclined at the table, and a woman in the town who was a sinner found out that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house. And she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. I mean, this is a, a jar made out of a precious stone with perfume in it. And she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to wash his feet with her tears. And she wiped his feet with her hair, kissing them and anointing them with the perfume. And when the Pharisee had, who had invited him saw this, he said to himself. So internally, he says to himself, this man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him. She's a sinner. Jesus replied to him, Simon, that's the name of the Pharisee, I have something to say to you. He said, say it, teacher. A creditor had two debtors. One owed him 50, 500 denarii, and the other 50. Now, a denarii is one day's wage. And so there's one debtor 
who has 50 days worth of debt, and there's one debtor who has 500 days worth of debt. Since they could not pay it back, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Well, Simon answered, I suppose the one he forgave more. You've judged correctly, Jesus told him. And turning to the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she with her tears has washed my feet and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she hasn't stopped kissing my feet since I came in. You didn't anoint my head with olive oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfume. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. That's why she loved much. But the one who is forgiven little loves little. And then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This, pa- this passage is a powerful lesson to us about all manner of hypocrisy that could be alive and well in our lives, and about what it means to sit at the feet of Jesus, what it means. But for the moment of thinking through hospitality, the Pharisees were happy to welcome Jesus into the room, but they didn't want that woman. They didn't want to show hospitality to a sinful woman. They didn't want her anywhere near their guest. They were embarrassed by the fact that this woman with that reputation had shown up in this house at this occasion. And yet, it is the outcast, it is the person who is in need that we should be very happy gets to the feet of Jesus, both physically while Jesus was on the earth 2,000 years ago, but then spiritually when they can be with us in our homes and in our presence, that we can lead them to the feet of Jesus in a spiritual, relational kind of way. So what are these obstacles that get in the way, and how can active faith overcome them? Well, let me give to you a few of these obstacles. Busyness. Uh, busyness is one of the obstacles that gets in the way of hospitality. Uh, life in the fast lane, I don't have time for other people, I'm too busy, my calendar's too packed, I got too much of my stuff going on in order to welcome somebody else into my house, to let somebody into my space, to host somebody, to be with somebody else, to spend time with somebody else. I, I'm, I'm a busy person, do you not understand who I am? A lot of eyes in there. Isolation. Isolation is another obstacle to our hospitality. My home is my castle. Uh, This is the place where I can crash and rest, and I don't have to be around you people with all of your problems and with all of your mess and with all the stuff you're going to bring into my. I I don't have. This is my safe space over here. And so it becomes an obstacle. Pride. Pride can be an obstacle to hospitality. My house is a mess, and I don't want you to see it. My house is not as big as your house, and I don't want you to know it. My stuff is not as good as your stuff, and I don't want to be embarrassed by it. I need to keep my ego intact over here, and I don't need other people knowing that I don't have what they have because it, it's my life is, 
I, I don't want to have to admit that somehow maybe my life is not as good as your life. And so our pride gets in a way that, that we're afraid that somebody who's got more or who we perceive has got it more together is going to see something about us that they're going to sneer or look down their nose at. Well, then I've got to just keep it all together. And then there's just blatant selfishness. Well, nobody's invited me to their house. Nobody's ever welcomed me into their life. It, it, that little group over there has never invited me to go golfing with them. That little group over there has never asked me to come over for their little pedophore, whatever those things are, little cake things, just send bunches of them. I love them. I didn't get invited to the such and such. But biblical hospitality says I'll go first. Biblical hospitality says I don't have to be invited to do some inviting. And then there's just fear. I, I just don't want people to know me. If people really knew me, they wouldn't like me. If people really saw what it is that my life looks like, they might reject me. If I make the move that I want to be biblically hospitable, which is not just inviting people into life, but into my house, but getting into their lives, then people are going to know stuff about me. I might wind up telling them about my past, of what I was saved from, and I I don't know that people will keep me around if they know about that stuff. And fear will get in the way. But hospitality says the business of your life is other people. You're not too busy from other people. The business of your life is other people. Hospitality says you don't live your life of faith alone. It is personal, but it's never private. Your faith is personal, but never private. Isolation has to go away because our faith is lived in community with one another. It says that, that I'm not going to let pride and fear and selfishness stand in the way because hospitality says that I open up my life so that people can see my mess, can love me through my mess, so that people can be loved through their messes. Your active faith will overcome this. This is how Jesus is willing to forgive a sinful woman to interact with her, whereas the Pharisees, they were like, we don't want anything to do with her because she is completely jacked up. But what they didn't know is that they were more jacked up than she was because she's seeking forgiveness and relationship with the God who saves. So let me just lead you to then into this next idea, and that is that hospitality will prioritize the needs of others. I mean, that's ultimately what I'm saying here. You know, if you want to come overcome all of these obstacles, it's through prioritizing the need of other people. The ideas of welcoming somebody into your life and meeting their needs naturally should be tied together. Now, we like to keep these things separated. I want to be friends with you, and I want to root for the same team that you root for, and I want to watch the same movies that you watch, and we can even go to dinner together, or you can come over for a cookout, and, and I'm going to keep like this line in the sand and then a cinder block wall built up between having you over in my space and then us dealing with needs. I, I'm not so sure about those two ideas. I can have you here, but I don't know that I can handle your needs. And that's a foreign concept to the Bible. In the book of Romans, chapter 12, verse 13, it says, 
Share with the saints in their needs. Pursue hospitality. I mean, right here, Paul ties these two ideas together into one sentence that you share with people in their needs and you pursue hospitality. And the fact that he has to tell us to pursue hospitality probably signals in our lives that we're not really good naturally at it. It's not the default mechanism of your life. The default mechanism of your life is protectionism. It's defensive. It is, I got to keep what's mine, but instead he says, pursue hospitality. And you can pursue hospitality by pursuing people. That's the only way to pursue hospitality because somebody who is an outsider has to become an insider. So to pursue hospitality means that you're pursuing other people. That means we need to pursue the exhausted single mother who needs a break. We need to pursue the immigrant who is new and needs a friend. We need to pursue the single adult who needs a group of people to to bind together with. We need to pursue the hurting teenager that needs somebody to talk with. We need to pursue the new family that wonders, do I belong here? Never pursuing protectionism, but always keeping in mind that that there's going to be a tension between their need and our need. Their need, my need. That's why I think it says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, it says here, be hospitable to one another without complaining. There's, there's the kicker. Just as each one has received a gift, use it to serve others as good stewards of the varied grace of God. Now, this passage, I'll just tell you as, as a guy who has preached a couple of times on this passage, sometimes we forget that first verse and we just jump right to verse 10 and kind of press on about speaking the words of God and serving with the strength God provides. And we say this is one of those places where it pictures what we refer to in the church as spiritual gifts. You know, when you were saved, the Spirit came into your life. He gifted you with certain things. Some people are great at administration, others at, at, at teaching, others at yeah, hospitality, others with, uh, you know, service. But it's set up with a very personal kind of context. Be hospitable to one another without complaining. It's the without complaining part that's hard. It's the pursuing other people. Hospitality without ministry is just selfish building up of your ego. Ministry without hospitality is kind of an insulting indifference. We need to be the people that meet the needs in other people's lives of both today and eternity. And so we show hospitality. We pursue these people without complaining that it's somehow infringing upon my calendar and infringing upon my needs. And the only way to do this, the only real antidote to the poison of selfishness in our lives and in our families, and and even if it were to be present in a church, is that we must pursue the radical generosity of the gospel. And I have tried to introduce to you over the last year the word radical and revolutionary a lot, because as people who are familiar with 
the story of Jesus and the salvation that we've inherited from Jesus, and for a lot of us that we came to faith in Christ maybe decades ago, sometimes we forget, we lose track of the radical nature of the gospel, of how it utterly turns your life right side up, because before it was upside down, and and how it completely is supposed to change your outlook about who you are and who everybody else in the world is. And, And so we've got to pursue this radical generosity that we see in Christ of what He has done through the gospel of dying for our sins for which we should be condemned. I mean, again, the revolutionary nature of this is not that Jesus came to break a couple of your bad habits, that Jesus came and you were a more or less nice person and He wanted to make you a little bit more nice, that you had a couple of, you know, tarnished spots that He's just going to polish and buff out for you. But rather, you and I are utterly dead in our sins, deserving nothing but eternal punishment that we have offended a holy and righteous God. This is what sin is. It is not a bad habit. It's not a little white lie. It's not something that God just kind of winks and nods at. But rather, this is offensive to the eternally holy God of the universe who has created everything, and He radically revolutionizes your life by dying for your sins. And if we will reflect that generosity in our lives, we cannot but help be hospitable to people that are in need around us. Then it's like, if I'm going to be anything like Jesus, I'm going to very quickly welcome people into my life. I'm going to quickly welcome people into the circle of influence that I might have to introduce them to this grace that I have received. So let me give you five quick, easy applications of this. One, ask this question, who is the most important person in the room? Always ask yourself that question and make sure that the answer is never me. That's that's the key here. If you ever say to yourself, who's the most important person in this room? Obviously, I am. Ask again, all right? Try another round at it but constantly looking for who is the most important person in the room will keep your mind and your heart trained on the idea of service to somebody else. Number two, live for the sake of others. Not act for the sake of others, not periodically look out for others, like literally live, give your life for the sake of other people. Make it your your daily mission that you want to find other people to pour your life into. Number three, very practical. Use your house as your greatest kingdom asset. The greatest physical asset that you will ever have in your life is your home. So use it in service of the kingdom of God. Don't make it the Superman fortress of solitude at the North Pole. 
Don't make it the place that nobody knows where to find you, that nobody knows where it is that you go and hide. And don't worry if what you have is not what the neighbor has or what the other person has or what the person that you're inviting over has. We live in such a a disjointed and disconnected culture that if you invite somebody actually over for dinner or for, you know, whatever dessert that you bought at Publix or for coffee or to watch a movie or to hang out and play board games, if you invite one of your neighbors over, it might just be the first invitation they've gotten since they moved here. I mean, that is not outside of the realm of possibilities, that you might be talking to somebody who never got an invitation to anybody's house. And the simple welcoming them into your living room and to your dining room table, I mean, this is an asset of the kingdom of God to be leveraged in the service of the gospel to show another human being that they are valued. Number four, out of five, so just a couple more. Number four, don't go to a life group, host one. Now, I know a lot of you are in life groups. There are a lot of you that are in a life group on a Sunday morning. Some of you are in life groups at other points of the week. But I want to just lay it out there before you to stop going to a life group. But instead, say, I want to start one in my house for my neighbors, the people that are not connected to Jesus Christ at all. I want to find a way to invite them into my home so that we can start having spiritual conversations in a way that will be biblically oriented, that I can pray for these people, that I can introduce them to the mercy that I have found in Jesus myself. And then fifthly, invite the uninvited into the family of God. As probably way too many words, I should have just said, witness to somebody. Share the gospel. Uh, There are a bunch of people who have not been invited into the family of God yet. Nobody has told them the gospel. Nobody has, has shared with them hope about life with Christ. Nobody has told them about forgiveness. Uh, we can't make these cultural assumptions any longer that people know about Jesus, that they know the real story. But instead, it's up to us. And this is going to begin if you will get past the obstacles of busyness and isolation and pride and selfishness and fear, and you will pursue people. It's something that we need to do inside of our homes. It needs to be something that we do with our homes. It needs to be something that we do here in our community. It's got to be what we do as a church family, that we want to invite the uninvited, that we want to include them, we want to invest in them so that they can see the Christ that we see, so they can know the Jesus that we know. So this morning as we have this time of response, I want to ask you to pray about a couple of different things. First of all, if, if you're here this morning and you think, well, you know, there's a whole lot of talk about the family of God, and I'm, I don't know that I'm a member. Well, for you, I, I would like to introduce you to how you can become a member of the family of God, to understand that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. And He rose again from the dead to defeat the condemnation that we face. 
And so if you want to have that conversation in a few moments when we all stand and we sing together, uh, Aaron and John and I, uh, two other pastors here at the church are going to be here front. We would love to have that conversation with you so we can answer your questions. But for all of you who are believers, I, I want you to dig into the idea of who is it that I know that I really don't know? Who is it that I'm acquainted with that, that we really don't know each other? And begin to ask the Spirit, God, what am I supposed to do here? How am I supposed to welcome this person into my house, into my life, so that I can pursue hospitality and ministry in their lives? Let's make sure that we are not looking past people, but instead we are pursuing them. Let's pray together.